Hello, my name is Bella Stahl. I grew up in Nairobi, Kenya. I am a rising junior, an environmental studies major, and a journalism minor. The subject of this podcast is a tour called Rebellious Berlin. It's a tour that explores the spaces in the city where different uprisings happened throughout Berlin's history. I was really excited to learn that I would be doing my podcast on this tour because this class has got me thinking a lot about how physical manifestations of history in public city spaces have the ability to play such an important role in creating and contributing to collective memory, which is something that I think we as people need to work harder on doing and doing well. So this tour offered a cool opportunity to visualize the important events that I wasn't aware of in a way that wouldn't be quite the same as learning about it in a museum or reading about it. I think it's also important to note that during this tour, we sometimes discuss stories about groups that are un- that are usually overlooked in discussions of significant historical events, which is something that we've been practicing a lot in this class, which is called Hidden Spaces, Hidden Narratives. Our tour started off at a memorial park for the women who undertook the only successful rebellion in Nazi Germany, when they protested outside a building where their Jewish husbands were being kept for future deportation. The protest occurred in February and March of 1943 and was the only mass protest undertaken by non-Jews against deportation of Jews in Nazi Germany, and it resulted in 2,000 lives being saved. We moved on from this park to another park spot, which featured a large metal statue of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and had a good view of the river. Here we discuss some of the earlier revolts that were important in Berlin's initial formation as a city. This was where the theme of the palace was brought up. When the royal palace was initially being built, residents in what is now Berlin protested by digging holes in the construction site. The palace was eventually built, but has gone through many changes since. It was torn down and replaced with the Palace of the Republic following World War II, when central Berlin was under Soviet rule, and it's now being rebuilt as a shopping center. For our next stop, the class sat down on the edge of the park facing this new palace. This was my favorite spot of the whole tour. It stood out to me because the palace seemed like such a good representation of how a single location, a physical space, can represent so much. And in this case, it represented the different hands that Berlin had been passed down through, and it also represented how easy it is for stories of resistance to be hidden, and how easy it is to forget injustice, which in this case, was a fundamental component to the building of the city and to its different transitions. This was a story of, there was a story of resistance though that was being told at this location. Our tour guide told us about how a group called the Baum Group that resisted the Nazis in the 30s and 40s carried out an attack on a Nazi exhibition. The exhibition called Soviet Paradise was meant to be an erotic criticism of day-to-day life in the USSR, and basically functioned as a form of propaganda. The Baum Group attempted to plant a firebomb in the exhibition as a way of challenging the Nazis, challenging their anti-Bolshevism, their anti-communism, and anti-Semitism. When the Nazis found out about the firebomb, they detained 500 Jewish people and killed all of them over the course of several months, 250 of which were shot immediately. Obviously, this is only one of many instances where the Nazis used the Jews as a scapegoat for something. But this story raised a lot of interesting questions for me about privilege, how people are taken advantage of, and how stories are taken advantage of. The Nazis took advantage of this story for their anti-Jewish and anti-communist propaganda. 
and to be able to hide from that at the time was a privilege. Decades later, a monument for these resistors was built near where our class was sitting. But this piece was made when this section of Berlin was part of the GDR, and it was significant to remember people who stood up to anti-Bolshevism and anti-communism when Berlin itself in this section was a part of a communist regime. So for me, this raises questions of who do we choose to remember, when do we choose to remember them, and why? Rarely, maybe never it seems, are acts of remembrance done solely for the sake of remembrance. As we continuously learn in this class, there are narratives that have been intentionally left out of collective memory, historically and currently, like the murdering of Sinti and Roma, disabled people and homosexuals in the Holocaust, and the forced sterilization and sometimes murder of black people in the Nazi era. Where does the remembrance of resistant movements fit into this? The Nazis can be seen as history's losers, and they hold a large spot in the world's collective memory. So remembering their resistors sends a certain message. On the other hand, there is no physical memorial for the people who died trying to resist the entrance of the royal family to Berlin. That's what I was thinking about on our third stop in this tour. For our fourth stop, we visited a memorial for all the victims of war, which featured a sculpture of a mother mourning her son, which was created by a famous artist, war resistor, and Nazi resistor, Kittekroibust. We then moved onto a, scare, a square where the potato revolution was thought to have started, and then walked to a building where there was a socialist painting depicting women in various roles in society, significantly roles that did not involve the family. Our last stop for the walking tour was a spot on the corner of a block in Potsdamer Platz. Potsdamer Platz is a very cosmopolitan, modern part of the city, and in the center of it, where we were, is a giant intersection surrounded by high-rises, malls, and office buildings. We gathered near a large stone cube, which we learned was intended to hold up a bust for Karl Liebknecht, who had a famous speech at the location on the 1st of May, 1916, in the middle of the First World War. Karl Liebknecht was a prominent social democrat in the parliament, and although he was part of the government, he stood up to it and called for the end of the war, even though he had to risk his life to do so. While we were learning about Liebknecht, we were also learning about Rosa Luxemburg and Clara Zetkin, together with whom Liebknecht formed the Spartacus League. Zetkin and Luxemburg were both names that we were familiar with due to studying them in our readings in class, but neither Luxemburg nor Zetkin had a memorial cornerstone built for them in Potsdamer Platz. So once again, I found myself asking, who do we choose to remember and why? The cornerstone was put up in 1951, just after the Second World War had ended. Our tour guide reminded us, as we have been continuously reminded in this class, that anti-Semitism did not end after World War II ended. It is therefore not surprising that Rosa Luxemburg, who was a Jewish female immigrant, did not have any memorial for her this early on in world history but she does now. Why? Why do we choose to focus on remembering certain things, certain people, at certain times? Groups that have been historically marginalized seem less likely to be intentionally included in collective memory, whether that be via the creation of public monuments or otherwise. There are some instances, though, when a community makes a concerted effort towards remembrance. There is no doubt 
with the efforts towards remembrance of the persecution of Jews in the Holocaust would look very different if it happened a few hundred years ago than it does today, which has a certain political climate that many may argue is a climate that is increasingly trying harder to hold itself accountable for past injustices against minority groups. But I definitely think that choosing to remember those groups in a public way, like with a monument, cannot avoid being a political move. And I think that this is especially the case for resistance movements. While we were at the corner in Potsdamer Platz, our tour guide told us about a resistance movement that happened only a few years ago in 2014, when immigrant Romanian construction workers filed a lawsuit when they weren't paid for helping to build a mall near where we were standing. To this day, the workers who sent the case to the courts have not been paid. This is clearly a case of a minority group being heavily exploited, a kind of story that is told in a lot of history museums around the world. But no, there is no memorial for these people because it is too recent, too close to home, and it would not make political sense to honor an injustice that peace, people are still suffering, um, people are still suffering with in a very tangible way. So that was a good reminder to me of how certain acts of resistance are not just left out of collective memory, but pushed out of collective consciousness today and every day. Hello everyone, this is Bella Stahl. I am a rising junior environmental studies major, journalism minor, and grew up in Nairobi, Kenya. I am here with Caroline Lividitis, who's a rising sophomore, major undeclared, who's from Chicago, and Avia Haley, who's from Binghamton, New York, um, an environmental science major, an education in feminist and gender studies minor, and is also a rising sophomore. Today, we will be discussing the rebellious Berlin tour, and part of our, um, Today we'll be discussing the rebellious Berlin tour, and the first question that we'll be addressing is, why is it important to have monuments of remembrance for historical events in public city spaces? Um, this is a question that I thought of because I feel like this class has got me thinking a lot about um, collective memory and why it's important to generate collective memory um, for things that have happened in the past in a certain place. So what does that get you guys thinking about? Um, yeah, I totally agree, and a great question, and the first thing that really pops to my head of why these monuments are so important, I think it's a way of, like, honoring and kind of paying tribute to those in the past who have done some remarkable things to help push, uh, you know, society further on, and as a form of resistance saying, you know, these key figures, like, they went against, like, say, society or the normal trend, and they pushed forward, and they made these huge changes, and it might have created conflict, but it also created progress. So it's important to have something to remember them by. Um, yeah, I completely agree with that. And thinking about these monuments, especially being on the tour, has kind of like, and this is a question we'll dive into later, but it got me thinking about um, who's being represented in them and who's missing out. So for example, on the monument we went to, which was which had the hole in the ceiling and the woman crying and everything, um, which is basically the monument to um, everyone murdered in every war and terror um, event, you know, in history with uh, folks on the Holocaust. I read the plaque and I noticed that Sinti and Roma people, Jews, and homosexuals were mentioned specifically, and then everybody else who had been murdered in the Holocaust were mentioned as sort of this category of the other. Um, 
And this kind of got me thinking about the idea of competitive victimhood and how we've seen that play out in the aftermath of the Holocaust, especially um, in terms of the homosexual community. I was noticing that in one of the readings we were having. Um, and I think that this kind of like underrepresentation, misrepresentation can be solved by these monuments. And these monuments can like shed light onto all these different communities um, and yeah, be a huge factor in solving issues related to that. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree, Caroline. I think they definitely, a lot of monuments could be, but unfortunately, like they aren't. Like a lot of times, say, when it comes to the field of science, there will always be a plaque for some man who might have just, I mean, in all reality and realistically been a sidekick and say, like, I feel like a lot of times just, you know, gender-wise females get put aside, but also, like, other groups, I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm even within marginalized communities that sometimes, you know, a different light could be shown on people. Like with the Holocaust, we think a lot of, you know, of the Jewish community and sometimes neglect other, you know, right. much like group who are also, you know, murdered or like kicked out of this country and mm-hmm. their stories in their plight often is kind of like in the shadows and you have to really dig to find that. Whereas like everyone mm-hmm. and anyone kind of knows, you know, or associates the Holocaust with like, the murder of so the murdering of so many Jews, which is accurate, but also it's important to think of other groups who were affected as well and who have kind of like the scarring or like the generational memory of that trauma. Right, and I think something, especially um, specific to monuments in particular, they're an incredibly permanent thing. So you look at a statue, and you know it's just an incredibly permanent thing that will stand there no matter what through any kind of weather or as I mentioned before, the names on the plaques outside of a monument, you see the names of homosexuals, you see Jews, you see Sinti and Roma, and then you see also very steadfastly every other category of people um, persecuted in the Holocaust grouped into um, the category of other, which is an extremely permanent thing. Um, And I think, yeah, as you were saying, shed light on the importance of why there needs to be specific remembrance in society and specific like, you know, productive action taken in order to remember every single person because otherwise they will get slipped through the cracks, in my opinion. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of people that slip through the cracks in history, and that's something that we address Mm -hmm. a lot in this class. And when I was talking to the tour guide, she um, said why she was inspired to do this tour is because she noticed that when she was doing them, when she was talking about buildings, she would talk Mm -hmm. about the architect um, or, like, some of the people that are, like, really at the head of certain movements, but the people who are, like, dying in huge numbers, Mm -hmm. the workers that are involved in a certain um, project are not remembered, and she wanted to remember people, so Mm -hmm. I wanted to pose the question, why is it specifically important to remember resistance movements and remember the people who are, the large numbers of people who are involved in um, rising up against injustice? I think that Focusing on resistance movements specifically is so special because kind of what you said is like it's going against, you know, things of that time and you can see people actually standing out for what they believe in and sometimes it may not be successful, but knowing that we all don't, you know, have to keep our heads down and walk Mm -hmm. in the line and follow the same cry, I feel like that's very empowering and then for those rebellious movements that do work out, then you know there's a fruitful for the labor, like something can actually come of you speaking out and fighting for what you believe in and it can make a better a better world which i feel like at the end of the day that's what we're trying to do we don't want to keep you know 
living in a world of terror or fear or things of that nature or just any specific type of plight but you want to push forward to do something better and so I always find encouragement and empowerment from seeing those movements that have been successful because it makes me think well hey if I seen something wrong like if I actually you know go out of my comfort zone and say something about it there can be something that comes out of that I absolutely agree and I think it's also really important when we're just thinking about like the place we are today and obviously there's an incredible amount of work to be done um, but kind of the things we take for granted, you know, like in our lives right now, like um, I'll be voting, for example, for the first time this next election, which is something I completely take for granted. Um, however, there is an incredible amount of people who, you know, got me and our collective society as a whole to a place where everybody is able to vote. Once again, just as one example of something that's been achieved through um, this kind of radical resistance, which at the time is viewed as completely, um, you know, wild and almost an impossible thing to achieve um i think the danger though of forgetting you know kind of these resistance movements and stuff is that once we forget the people who were actually instrumental in creating something that we take for granted every day and their memories fade further and further into history then the same people that they represented also fade further and further back um and we kind of end up in a cycle where we started i don't know if that makes sense to you guys but um yeah that's something i've been thinking about a lot and one reason why as we move forward it's incredibly important to still remember where we came from and who got us to these places and i think even like the people who tried to get us somewhere else and didn't get us here Mm -hmm. like i think that it's when we look at the world around us it's easy to take for granted that this is what it is because of the people that won Mm -hmm. and i think the first the first place that we went to was um as our tour guide said, the only successful rebellion in Nazi Germany, which was really inspiring to start mm-hmm. off with, but a lot of the resistance movements that we focused on on the tour were not successful. Um, like the people who first lived in Berlin and mm-hmm. didn't want the royal crown to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to remember that well, where we are today isn't necessarily a product. Sometimes it is a product of people rising up and demanding um, things for the better, but sometimes we are where we are today as a product of people who beat people mm-hmm. who are trying to demand better. Not to say that that's a good thing. It's the opposite. We need to remember that like continuously that is happening. People who have more power will take advantage of those that don't. And like, it's important to remember that that resistance happened in the first place and continues to happen. And Yeah, I agree. That always reminds me of, like, sometimes you hear this in school, where, like, you might not win the battle. Like, there's a lot of people that fought hard, but, like, at the end of the day, you can win the war. And that there's steps and there's a process to any type of movement. And, you know, coming together collectively in general, you might have your ups and your downs, but in the end, you know, you're going for this one goal and trying to achieve it. So definitely remembering those who, you know, might not have won that specific battle, but helped pave the way for others to come through. Yeah, and just as a quick add-on to that, I think one of the things I really appreciated about this tour was, as you guys said, it was not just about the successful rebellions. Like, we started on a good note, we ended on a good note um, with the successful rebellions that they did have um, in the past here in Berlin. However, a lot of what we focused on were things that were either successful for a very short time or unsuccessful, yet there's still things that we remember and we see as symbols and as guidelines for ways that we can continue to resist in the future. Um, And I think exemplifying the importance of failure and the importance of um, continually trying and trying 
um, that we saw in this tour was um, a unique thing, especially to kind of the class like space we've been having. And yeah, just something pretty inspiring to hear. Yeah. Cool. Um, and just like bringing it back to our class, I think a lot about the actual title of this class, which is Hidden Spaces, Hidden Narratives. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important to think about how even when we're talking about these inspiring resistance movements, which is like honestly on a lighter note than like some other things that like people will hear when they take history tours about um, Berlin. I think that it's important to think about how even the resistance movements that have been successful, um, that have been against, you know, like some stronger powers, were also somewhat linked to privilege. Mm. Um, like I think that the, the first um, spot that we went to was a result of women who fought on behalf of their Jewish husbands who were being kept in a building, um, but those women were non-Jews at the time, which is obviously a privileged position to be in in Nazi Germany. So I just wanted to like bring up the question of how does privilege come into play in um, the portrayal of these resistance movements and what are your thoughts on that? I would think that privilege plays a key role. I don't think there's been any movement that doesn't you know, have ties to privilege, because when you think about, like, these mass movements, just one thing, you're going to need resources, and who has availability, or, like, say, if you have a huge movement, you're going to want to have allies in making those ties, or I just think about a lot of the times, just, like, thinking more back home in, like, the U.S., something that Heidi brought up in class, and, like, say, the front lines of, like, say, Black Lives Matters movements of like, if you're on the front lines, who's gonna get arrested? Whose privilege is that? You know, if you have all, say, African American males in the front line mm -hmm. protesting versus all white males, mm -hmm. like, all there for the same goal. But when it comes to, like, say, getting arrested, there's gonna be different outcomes and there's gonna be one group where privilege definitely plays a higher role. So I'd say every movement, there's somebody who has some form of privilege and not to say that it's a bad thing because a lot of times that can be used to push a movement forward but it should be definitely something that is regarded and taken into consideration because like the way we all get to travel inhabit and move through this world is incredibly different so just taking that into note and like there will be privilege in every movement but trying to use that to our advantage and just noting that like if you know that say one of your comrades is more likely to get in trouble or like get arrested or end up dead, then maybe we don't put them on the front line with the posters that says, you know, fuck the police. Maybe we let them, you know, chill in the middle with safety around them. Um, yeah, and just to go off of Avi's point once again, I think thinking about the role that our privilege plays, especially as people who are extremely privileged, um, who are operating in a group that represents a privileged portion of society, thinking about the role that our privilege plays in resistance movements and rebellions is extremely important. I absolutely agree that a, as privileged people, we have the responsibility to gather these resources and organize and do things that people with less access to these um, spaces might not be able to do, um, as well as more importantly, acting as people who as people with more privilege and as with more agency to move through the world um, to protect people who are also ex an extremely important part of these movements but who may not have as much agency in this regard. So, for example, in the Black Lives Matter example, 
i think thinking about maybe putting people with more privilege in the front lines and even having maybe people who have the agency to interact with the police in a different way. maybe having these people get arrested instead of people of color who the police are naturally biased against or even just having these people put in places that are more vulnerable so that people who are inherently more vulnerable um, are not subjugated to these things and um, the resistance movement can continue going on. Yeah. Question, um, how do you think that this tour and what you learned from it contributed to what we've been talking about in class and how you are viewing the topics that we've been discuss saying, discussing? Um, once again, <laughs> amazing question. I really loved it. I think there was definitely a distinct point of the tour that hit me really hard that helped me um, connect everything. It was, I believe, the second to last stop when we start in front of the mural of people, you know, it was showing it, people in Berlin who I guess were like post-rebellion in life and they were kind of like happy and googly and the tour was telling me especially how she really liked the mural especially because you know women were at the forefront and it was you know great to see them in action and it was crazy because the first emotion or sentiment that I felt when I looked at the mural is I was creeped out it was very <laughs> unsettling to me it's like I walked into like a wonder bread town and uh, I was really spooked so I was just first of all amazing that two people could have that different you know interaction with a piece of art but I was thinking to myself like this lacks so much um representation like where are all the POCs like where are the women of color the men of color and then through talking it out with like Heidi and the um guide herself it wasn't a lack of representation but more and so it was an accurate representation of the time. So that really clicked with me, like with hidden spaces and hidden narratives, like this time was like predominantly white and predominantly nationalistic and German. And so many people were like excluded or kept in the shadows and their stories, like especially if you were just a part of the black community that Heidi was talking about her friend who didn't see their first other person of color until they were 15 years old and that's like crazy of me to think because like as soon as I came out of the womb like I had my family we had our family we had our friends but to go in that concept of living an entire life not feeling like you belong or having a group that you can truly connect to that that hit me hard so that was the point in the tour where I was definitely like wow this is how it connects to this class or how I can see it connecting and I was really grateful for that part because it was a very thought-provoking moment to say the least um absolutely I think a lot of what I got out of this tour had to do with representation as well um and I want to reference once again I think it was our second or third stop but the monument that we saw um with the hole in the ceiling and the woman carrying her child um that was a memorial to all war and terror um but the holocaust as well and seeing in this extremely permanent looking metal plaque on the wall outside of it um, this memorial is for uh, Sinti and Roma, homosexual, homosexuals, Jews, and everybody else, once again, as I said, persecuted in the Holocaust grouped into the other category, um, was a huge thing for me. And of course, as, as I've been getting older and as I've been um, becoming more aware in the world, I've been trying thinking a lot about representation, how representation in our society matters and things like that. Um, although I have to admit it never hit me as hard as it did until I saw that plaque and saw the permanence of people 
persecuted in this absolutely, arguably the most horrific event in history, still after the fact being grouped into the category of other. And these people who have arguably not been, not take, been taken out of the category of other even to this day. Um, so that really got me thinking about how important representation is. And of course it's about movies and it's about things kids grow up seeing. Um, but at the same time, it's so much more than that. And it's also just, yeah, just made me think about how much we have to work on. Um, and it's really driven the point home for me. Cool. We're thank well, thank you guys so much for joining me on this discussion today. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having yeah. us. It was a pleasure. <laughs>